as it's been mentioned. Can you hear me? If I speak loud, there we go. As it's been mentioned, we are going to finish up uh, uh, the, the series on gospel-shaped worship. This is session seven or lesson seven, uh, whichever one you want to call it. Uh, it's called Being Church, and uh, that's exactly what I want to do with you, or with you tonight is to share with you what it means to be church. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to take a look at this entire chapter and real quickly, of course, but see how we can put it together. That's what I want to, I want to share with you tonight. What does it mean being church? What's the difference between going to church and uh, being church? And hopefully we can draw in some of the things that you've already heard from God's word about why and about how we are to worship uh, as a people, as a group of people, as a body of believers. So the first thing I want to share with you is to understand is an understanding, an understanding that being church involves commitment. Uh, and tonight I want to look at five commitments that the church makes and how being church is a major part of that. The five commitments are in the lesson, so it's actually going to be uh, me. I'm going to share with you these five commitments, and Jared's going to share with you the same five commitments on the video, okay? And he'll do a much better job than me. That's why we're showing the videos. And so you'll see that when it comes out. But the first commitment I do want to share with you uh, tonight is the, the, that a church makes is the church makes a commitment to love. And here in Romans chapter 12, uh, we can see that authentic love cannot, cannot flow or authentic love can't be there, if you will, unless you have an established relationship with God. Would you agree with that? We can fake love, we can have a fleshly type love, but authentic, genuine love can't be there, can't flow in our lives unless we have a relationship with Him. We see that here in the verse, very first two verses of Romans chapter 12, and we're just going to read them. Uh, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I know Pastor Tim has broken this down uh, for us already in the last couple weeks, so we won't spend a lot of time on that. But you can see where we need to put ourselves at God's disposal. We need to have that relationship with Him. Love can't begin to, to show and love can't begin to flow through us until we have that authentic relationship with Him. One writer says, he puts it this way about this passage. He says, the worshipful act of consecration will usher in the process of transformation. The worshipful act of consecration, giving ourselves over, presenting ourselves to God, and having our, our, our minds being conformed to Him and not conformed to this world, uh, ushers in the process of transformation. And I think that's good to understand. In this dedication to God, in our attitudes to God, if you will, in our feelings to God, in our actions, when we, are, when we are given over to Him, they start to change as the Holy Spirit reshapes our minds and reshapes our attitudes and reshapes the way we think of things. Our focus is, is taken off the world and is put on God. Amen? That's good to do. That's what they're talking about here in a, in a nutshell. Without this transformation, if you will, without this divine transformation, 
we couldn't begin to love as we should love, as the Bible says we should love. In fact, in verse 3, if you follow along, if you keep going, it says here, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Verse 3 goes on to show us that we are, we are mentally transformed when we, when we uh, uh, are not conformed to this world and we, and we sacrifice and spiritually give ourselves to God, that, that we are mentally transformed and we're able to, to properly evaluate ourselves. And because we can properly evaluate ourselves, we should be thinking what verse 3 says here, that we ought to and be very careful uh, for the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than we ought to think. More highly than they ought to think. That is hard for us sometimes, is it not? But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We're able to see, once, we've, once, our, once our minds have been transformed, once our lives have been given over to God, once we have that relationship with him, we're able to see that we are a people with a purpose or a purposeful people, if you will. We have a purpose, and God is gifted in various ways. He has gifted every single one of us so that we can encourage, so that we can enhance, so that we can minister to others. Hence, not to think more of ourselves than we should. That's why he's given us those gifts. It's not to think that I'm the best at this and I'm the best at that, and I'm better than you at this, and I'm better than you at that. That's not it at all. That's not what he's talking about. We oughtn't think too much of ourselves. Because God has given us all that we have, the gifts we have. Isn't that true? To use with one another. So, with that in mind, the proper exercise of our gifts in the body of Christ can't be complete, can't be all there, if you will, without having a love toward others or what they call an other-oriented love. It just can't be complete for that. We can't have those gifts. God hasn't richly blessed us with those for us just to keep. Okay? When he gives us those, we have to have a love toward others because our lives have been transformed. We have that relationship with God. That should be our desire. That should be what we want to do to glorify him, is to use those gifts that God has given us in the body of Christ. So perhaps that's why Paul exhorts us to use the gifts uh, when ministering to our brothers and sisters in the Lord in local churches. Look at verse 4. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. I know all of you have that underlined in your Bible, correct? Let us use them if prophecy in portion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Folks, there are many members. We have many, many different gifts, but we all have the same function. And that is the function of the body of Christ. That is being church. Not just going to church, that is being church. The bottom line is, according to, to this lesson, 
uh, we should be so captivated by God's immeasurable love and, uh, 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 to us through the gospel by how great that is that, that we make real, deep, lasting, loving commitments to each other. That's what should happen. That's what the Bible says should happen. So the church makes a commitment to love. And not just love here and love there, but to love one another. That's part of being church. The second point is the church makes a commitment to truth. Look with me in verse 9. Actually, 9 and 10. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, we find in this verse several commands that reveal at least a couple of key traits that deal with truth and love. The first trait is this, that real love, real genuine love, is unhypocritical. It, it, the person who, let me give you an example, the person who verbally elevates someone or, or talks nicely about someone or says nice things about someone, while inside, internally, they're churning with hatred toward that person, is not expressing real, genuine love. Would you agree with that? The love Christians are to share is not just an outward expression, but it's an outward expression that lies deep within, within us because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, because of our relationship with God. It's tempered by humility. It's tempered by grace. And it's also tempered by something that is often forgotten by Christians. Tact. Isn't that true? You know, Jesus loves you and you're on your way to hell if you don't change your ways. That's not maybe the most tactful way to share the gospel. And it's certainly not complete. There's, there's grace and tact that is needed. There's a second trait. Real love has nothing to do with playing favorites. There is no room for bigotry. There's no room for prejudice in a Christian's life. Amen? Could have been a little louder there. I mean prejudice about anything, not just the color of someone's skin, not just the, uh, the where they live. There is no room for that at all in a Christian's life. The Word of God does say we are to abhor evil. That's what it says here in uh, verse 9. We are to hold fast to what is good. In other words, genuine love rejects all that is evil in its many faces and its many facets as well. But... It stands against it. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with it. And in the same sense, it clings to what is good. Real, genuine supports righteousness and, and the things that are good in every possible way. And the reason that is, verse 10 ties it all together here. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Think about that. Is that how we express being church? When we come together, it's just a question that we should examine ourselves when we come together like this. Now, I'm going to see what Jared Wilson says as he breaks this down, and he goes over these same points. Now, you'll get more out of it than what I just said, so pay close attention, okay, as we see the first, uh, first video. As we flash forward a year, we find that Marty and Susan have committed to a local church fellowship. 
They have formally become members and are participating in a weekly community group in addition to attending the Sunday worship service. One Sunday, on their way home from the gathering, they began to reflect on their journey to find a church home in their new town. Oh, I'm sure glad we found a church. Yeah, me too. I used to think we'd never find a place that, you know, a place where we felt at home. But we didn't even feel at home, well, anywhere, not even at this place. Yeah, that's true. I think it was sort of, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was expecting to feel the blessings of a commitment before actually making that commitment. <laughs> Sounds a little like marriage. Yeah, what do you mean? Well, I mean, think of it this way. Before we got married, well, we certainly had a lot of hopes, and we made a lot of promises, and... Well, we were trusting that when we got married, we would both work hard to make each other happy. You don't really find out, really, what you're going to need to forgive and to ask forgiveness for until you pull the trigger. That's a funny way to describe getting married. <laughs> I just mean that, you know, <coughs> there's no way to know someone perfectly before you make a commitment. Yeah, right. I mean, you have to have some faith. Yeah. And you know what? Once you're in a relationship, you find out all sorts of deeper things to overlook than you did before you even made the commitment. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, we were searching for a church, trying to figure out how to overlook songs that we didn't quite care for, sermons. But once we joined the church, I mean, now we're figuring out how to actually live out Christian community with people who are just as opinionated and messed up as we are. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Well, I'll tell you what I thought. I'm sure glad God is patient with us. I mean, I hope, I hope we'll always remember that when it comes to being in fellowship with our church. I hope they'll always remember that when it comes to being in fellowship with us. <laughs> what does it mean to really belong to a church? One thing the Apostle Paul is concerned about when it comes to the churches he has overseen is that they genuinely and graciously care for each other. He is obviously concerned that they understand and hold to the truth of the gospel, and he is concerned about their devotional life. But he is equally concerned that the way they think about each other bears witness to the truth of their doctrine and their devotion. For Paul, and for the rest of the inspired teachers in the Bible, a gospel doctrine must produce a gospel culture, a gospel-shaped church. So the message of Jesus Christ to save sinners through his life, death, and resurrection has real-life effects, not just in our affections for him, but in our affections for others, inside the church and out. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 12. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here is a picture of the gospel taking charge of church culture. Paul expects Christians to be so captivated by the love of God in Christ that they will make real, deep, lasting commitments to each other. And these commitments are first of all characterized by love. We love because he first loved us, John says. The Father's love for us expressed in the gospel is a deep love of Christians for each other. And this is no mere toleration of each other. Paul says, let love be genuine. He says we ought to love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This kind of love is something only the gospel can cultivate because it's in the gospel that God has loved us beyond measure, pouring out on us all the riches of Christ's righteousness and lavishing on us his everlasting spiritual affection. But there is a deeper understanding of what makes for true love. When Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, he says that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Right after Paul commands us to let our love be genuine, he says, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is certainly about evil actions, immoral behavior, and the like. Anything that might bring disrepute upon the fellowship. When we become Christians and enter a Christian covenant community, a church, we are no longer living simply for ourselves, concerned only about our own growth and reputations. We have now made a commitment to live for the growth of the church and for its reputation. So if we engage in ongoing unrepentant sin, we don't simply compromise our own witness. We compromise the witness of our church. But Paul is also concerned about doctrinal truth, knowing that heresy and other false teachings are themselves evil, the fruit of satanic activity. Holding fast to what is good, then, has as much to do with pursuing biblical doctrine and sound theology as it does with pursuing moral behavior and an honorable reputation. A commitment to biblical truth is important for the church's growth and reputation because if we lose doctrinal soundness, we actually lose the gospel itself. This is why in Acts we see that the early converts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And over and over again, Paul encourages the recipients of his letters to hold fast to the word, to test themselves to see if they are in the faith, to remember the gospel. He doesn't want them to open themselves up to the accusation of having believed in vain. Romans is a letter that is devoted to the great historical and doctrinal truths of the gospel of grace and election and covenantal love. But here in Romans 12, Paul connects holding fast to what is good, the truths of the gospel, to engaging in genuine love. The great commandment, of course, also connects loving God with all our minds to loving our neighbors. So we have a commitment as a church to a commitment to love 
and a commitment to the truth. But the third commitment that we want to look at tonight is a commitment to gather together. And uh, it goes right along with the other two. In verse 11 here in Romans chapter 12, it says, Do, uh, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Along with love and along with truth, as we gather together, we should gather with a sense of enthusiasm. Uh, we should gather with a, uh, with a sense of zeal. Look what it says. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. We shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't be slothful. We should have a fervency of spirit as we serve the Lord. You know, we're, we're, we're not to be indifferent in our Christian service. In other words, we're not to say, well, it's okay, that's fine. If I don't do that, that's fine. If I do, that's fine. If I have time, maybe I will. Things like that. We're not to be indifferent to it. We're, we're to have a, a fervency for it. We should, we should engage in service with enthusiasm. Wouldn't you agree? Doesn't it make, when, you, when you're serving something, or someone, or, or an organization, that when you're excited about it, makes it so much better, so much easier than, okay, I suppose I need to go and show up and do whatever it is you're going to do. I suppose I should go talk to that person. You know, they've been pretty down lately, and they could probably use some encouragement. You know, so I guess I'll go, maybe pray with them. Maybe that'll help, you know. That's not exactly using zeal. That's not using fervency of spirit. You see, we need to, we need to use enthusiasm, and we need to use delight. We need to be positive. We need to have excitement. We need to, to use the best of things as we serve together, as we gather together. We should also gather with hopefulness and consistency and, and prayer. Look at verse 12. Not only does he say, not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, but rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. As believers, we should never feel totally bound by the things that are, that are visible or the temporary things of the, of the past or the temporary things of the present. We shouldn't be bound by those. Our hope is in the, in the glory of God. Amen? And we're, when we think of the eternal, we're, gonna, we're going to experience that glory one day. And so great will be the enjoyment of God's glory that it's referred to in theology as our glorification. And sometimes we don't look ahead at that. Sometimes we just... We have a mundane thought and spirit of being a Christian. I'm glad I'm saved. Now I'm going to live out this mundane Christian life. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how we're to do it. God is in the process of remaking us. And understand this, he will never stop. And we ought to be thankful for that. Grateful for that. If you're 90, he's still in the process of remaking you. He has a purpose for you. Or whether you're nine, it doesn't seem to matter. In the Word of God, not only through, uh, not only uh, is He remaking us, the, the thought ought to help us per, uh, persevere in the midst of our adversity. When we gather together, listen. When people are, we should we should persevere no matter what people think. When people gather together, and, and, and you're going to find somebody. Out, and this is probably going to shock some of you, but you're going to find there are some people are difficult to get along with. Would you agree with that? 
You want me to point some of you out? No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Some people are difficult to get along with, and, 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 and Christian love has resilience. It has staying power. He says in, in verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Some people are just difficult. It's, it's through patience that bridges are built and, and that walls are, are broken down. But not only through that, the passage says, also in prayer. Prayer is what gets us to where we need to go. He says, be constant in prayer. When we gather together and we pray, you bring the needs and the concerns of others to the throne room of God and you intercede for them. That's an awesome responsibility. That's an awesome privilege. It goes on to say in verse 13, we should gather also with generosity and hospitality. Look what it says. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Folks, Christians are responsible to help meet the needs of fellow believers. That's not an option. That's our responsibility at being church. That's a responsibility. Not just financial matters, but spiritual matters, psychological matters, physical matters as well, whatever. When we refuse to help, those in, help, help others in such matters, we display a lack of love, a lack of authentic, genuine love that we have as a relationship with Christ. 1 John 3, 17, 18 says, but if anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What does this passage mean here in 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 verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Well, it means to, 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 to actually the Greek term for show hospitality actually means to show affection to strangers. Can you believe that? Show affection to strangers. I'd much rather be hospitable to those I know. Wouldn't you? And not that you shouldn't be. That's not what I'm talking about. You should be. But this, in the, in the Greek term, means actually to be to show affection to strangers. Simply, think of this, simply because you, 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 you may not know a certain people or a certain person, and you may not be named among them or name them among, um, as your friends or your acquaintances or people that you even hobnob with, whatever the case may be, doesn't give us the right to ignore them or doesn't give us the right to slight them. You know, when we know there's a need... There's something, maybe they need encouragement, and you are aware of that. And you say, yeah, but, you know, I don't hang with them. That's not a good enough excuse. That's not part of being church. In fact, it's quite the contrary. We should openly invite them. We should express to them a sincere kindness and a sincere love that God has shown us in our lives. And then there's a the fourth commitment church makes. The church makes a commitment to serve. Look at verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. I'm sorry, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Folks, let's remember, Paul's dealing with relationships here that are, that are, that are personal, 
not national or not universal. And what I mean by that is he's not talking about relationships between countries and communities here. Instead, he's given instruction on how individuals should relate to those persons who, for some reason, have become your enemies. That's what he's talking about. Another thing to keep in mind, that the counsel here that he gives in this passage is attainable. It's not just idealistic. It's not just something that's out there. Well, that's the ideal, but this is, this is reality. This is attainable. Look what he says in verse 14. This is the first thing I want us to see. He gives us a command. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them unless you feel like it. Doesn't say that. Listen, it is a command that, is, that, that, that counteracts our natural human instincts, does it not? I mean, some of you may not have this, but I'm going to guess the majority in here, it is just against our natural tendencies to bless those who persecute us. Right? I'm sure there are some in here, that's the first thought. Somebody says something nasty to you, and their first thought is, well, bless you, brother. It may be, and I hope it is. But that natural tendency is not to think that way. Our natural tendency is to lash out at that person. Lash out at that person who has just made a sarcastic jab at you or just hurt your feelings. The Lord does not want us to, to follow our natural instincts. He wants us to obey a supernatural command and bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We're told to speak well of those who criticize us. Speak well of those who slander us. Like it or not, we are called to be gracious to them. That's what this passage says. The next thing we can see here as we go on as a community to serve, look at verse 15. Here in verse 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're not, the, we're not just to not curse them and, and retaliate and, and, and that we're to bless them, but we're also to, to see life from someone else's perspective. It, it keeps us, when we, when we see that life from someone else's perspective, it puts us in our place. And, and the reason we can get ourselves put in our own place is we put ourselves in their place. And that's what verse 15 is saying. When someone is rejoicing, what should we do? It says it right here, come on. We should rejoice. Wake it up there, people. When they're weeping, we should do what? Weep. If I don't get more participation, I'm going to be weeping. Okay? then you all should be weeping. That's what it says. We're to put ourselves in a place, in their place. And if, you know, think about this. If we're in a habit of putting ourselves in other people's places, we would see life so much more differently, would we not? According to verse 16, if you look with me in verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. When we see life from someone else's perspective, it keeps us in their right frame of mind and keeps us humble. It's so important. It helps us to live in harmony with one another, not be haughty, not be proud. It helps us to associate with those who don't have as much or maybe they're struggling with the difficulties in life because we put ourselves in their place. When they rejoice, we rejoice. When they weep, we weep. It helps us keep us, it helps keeps us from 
being a, a know-it-all. As it says here, being wise in our own sight. That's what it does. A church makes a commitment to serve. Now let's see what Jared has to say about these last or these next two uh, uh, commitments of the church as we take a look at another video. Paul writes, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The apostle is assuming that genuine love for the brethren entails actually being present with one another. He urges us not to be lazy in our efforts with and for each other. He commands fervency. He instructs us to take care of each other according to our needs and to be hospitable with each other. There is simply no indication from this passage or any other New Testament passage that one can be a part of the universal church without participating in the life of a local church. We all know that there are lots of troubled churches out there. Churches are full of sinners because churches are full of people. So we come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses to keep our distance from each other. We become little judges of purity and quality. Withdrawing from fellowship with others is often the opposite of rejoicing in hope. Instead, it is grumbling and cynicism. The kind of commitment to community Paul is describing here draws from the description in Acts 2 we read about in one of our earlier sessions. And in none of these pictures of the covenant community of a gospel-shaped church, do we see mere church attendance described as the totality of Christian fellowship. Gathering to worship on the weekend is just the beginning of the church gathering together. Going to church is not simply a part of the Christian's personal schedule. The life of the church instead is the very context of the Christian schedule. We are each individual members of a body. When we do not gather with the rest of our church, we rob them of vital body parts and prevent them from operating and worshiping as God has designed. Failing to join in fellowship is simply selfish. In Hebrews 2, we learn that Jesus is not ashamed to call Christians his brothers and sisters. If the holy God of the universe is not ashamed to associate with so many messy, broken, sinful people, Surely it makes our turned-up noses and stiff arms seem extraordinarily petty and graceless. As one preacher said, Why should I refuse to embrace one that Jesus has united to himself? When we make a commitment to participate in the life of a local church, we are giving ultimate worth to God. We are worshiping Him. The gospel that has joined us together and redeemed us has also joined us to the body of other believers. When we live with other messy, broken, sinful people in grace and love, we show how great and powerful and wonderful the gospel is, and we glorify the God we serve and worship. Paul continues in Romans 12, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The gospel helps us deny ourselves and take up our cross. 
which are necessary for loving our neighbors as ourselves. The love of others begins with the fellowship itself as we contribute to the needs of the saints. In desiring to live in harmony with one another, we repent of our haughtiness, our pride, and instead we look to the needs of others. What breaks our brothers breaks us. What thrills our brothers thrills us. When one member enjoys a success, we all enjoy it with him. When he suffers a defeat, we feel defeated with him. This is part of the experience of being reconciled to each other through the gospel, of being part of the same body. But we serve each other, not just in tangible and material ways, but in emotional and spiritual ways too. So we might give money to a brother in financial need. We might pray with a sister who is caught in a sin. And we might sit and weep with a family that has suffered a tragedy. Paul understands that to make the commitment to serve each other, we must crucify our pride, which is why he tells us not to be haughty or wise in our own sight, but to instead associate with the lowly. So the church is not like the world where the rich and powerful take priority. We spend time and enjoy friendships across cultural divides and among different social classes. This is something the gospel does because it reminds us we are sinners but that Christ has died for us. Knowing this deep down, the gospel creates tremendous humility. And when we are humbled by the Lord, we give him glory in having saved us while we were still his enemies. The gospel that humbles us, though, also emboldens us. We are broken down so that we can be filled up by the Spirit. And the Spirit that fills the churches empowers the churches to proclaim the gospel and bear witness to its truth so that the Spirit may also fill the entire world. When we've looked at the church's commitment to, uh, to love and to truth and to gather and to serve, let's look at the last one, the church's commitment to bless the world. Verse 17, here in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it with the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For if by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verses 17 and 18 forces us to think about something. When we think of our enemies, we often think of those outside the church. And we also have a tendency to focus on our enemies' weaknesses. That way we can hit them right where oh, it brings them down. Correct? Yes. You know, God is opposed to that type of a tactic. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This approach, this command will make, we'll make it much easier, if you will, to carry out the command in verse 18, where he says, where he says, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you understand command in verse 17, it'll help you live out the command in verse 18, that if possible, live out, live, live peaceably with all, as much as it depends upon you. You know what? And living peaceably with all has a lot to do with us, 
correct? We can't always blame it on our circumstances or our situations. You know, our task isn't to force others to change. Our task is to allow God to change us so that, the, so, so that peace might, might have an opportunity to reign in that relationship. And then we go to verse 19. And this is one we all have to learn. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We leave all revenge to him. We talked about that somewhat in Sunday school this morning. We don't need to avenge ourselves. If we, if we are right, God will exonerate us. If we are wrong, he'll convict us. Then verse 20 says, To the contrary, if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome, or do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, this passage is teaching us that when we respond to personal assaults with, with genuine love and with acts of kindness, we'll bring a, a burning sense of shame and a, and a sense of guilt to those who dislike us. It doesn't mean that we're getting revenge on them. As a church, acts of blessings to the world is attractive to those outside. It foreshadows God's kingdom that is yet to come, and that's what we should strive to do. We're going to watch just a short third video, and then we'll be done. And Jared can explain this uh, as he sums things up far better than I can. So let's watch the last one. As we can see, there is a lot more involved in going to church than simply attending a worship service. The gospel is designed to remake our entire souls, reorienting us away from ourselves and instead around God and others. It turns us from lovers of self into lovers of God and lovers of others. And the gospel makes the church, so the church operates according to the gospel that has made it. A gospel-shaped church is a church that magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ in all that it does and says. Jesus calls his church to love and care for each other, but he also calls his people to love and care for those who are outside. The church that is not on mission, in fact, is not acting true to its own nature. The gospel is not meant to be hoarded, but to be shared. So Paul connects the inner life of the church with the outward witness of the church. He moves from inward relational harmony and service to outward acts of justice and mercy and blessing. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have gone from harmony with each other, hospitality with each other, needs meeting with each other, to now ministering to those considered our enemies. This is something, of course, only the gospel can help us do. When we see the purposes of the church in enjoying the gospel in the New Testament teaching, the phrase missional church ought to strike us as incredibly redundant. 
The famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. That's a hard word, but it certainly is in keeping with Paul's command to let love be genuine. If we say we love God but have no love for our brothers, we are liars. And if we say we love God but have no love for the lost, we are liars. The love God gives us in the gospel is more than enough for us. It must overflow, spill the banks of the church fellowship, and begin to flood the communities the church finds itself in. The church centered on the gospel then makes a commitment to bless the world. We determine that we are so satisfied in God that we are willing to live at peace with all men so far as we are able. We determine, by God's grace, to suffer wrongs if it will further the gospel. We determine to hand over to God what is rightfully His, the place of judgment, the place of authority, the place of sovereignty. And because we, who were enemies of God, were nevertheless fed and clothed by Him in Christ, we ascribe maximum worth to Him and maximum glory to His gospel by feeding and clothing others. And in the end, our efforts at fulfilling Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, serve to foreshadow that great day when the Lord will return and finally overcome evil forever with his eternal goodness. And these efforts also serve to recollect that great and wonderful day when the Lord came in spirit to our souls and overcame our evil dispositions forever with his eternal righteousness. The church that is shaped by the gospel is also empowered by the Spirit to bless the world as the overflow of God's blessing of us. That the world may know the God we serve and worship Him alongside us in spirit and in truth.